Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's time for episode 94 of Love That Album podcast. In Australia, 1989 saw the release of albums like The AOR of Ish by 1927, The Pub Rock of Johnny Diesel and the Injectors, and the long-awaited pop-funk solo debut by former Cold Chisel guitarist Ian Moss. Also released that year was Claim, the fourth full-length record by Melbourne band Not Drowning Waving. They'd been around since the early 80s playing their blend of rock mixed with atmospheric music, groove and the traditional music of Papua New Guinea with its strong emphasis on percussion. Morris is joined by his friend Julian Gillis who introduced him to the album in the early 90s. They have a discussion about what compels them to the record. Morris and Julian also have a chat with David Bridie, the leader, songwriter and pianist of Not Drowning Waving. He's gone on to a multitude of other projects, most prominently chamber pop group My Friend the Chocolate Cake, film soundtrack composition and a series of diverse solo albums. The conversation focuses around Claim, Papua New Guinea, an AFL football icon and the perks of being the support act of a music superstar. Eric Reanimator's Album I Love segment focuses on Finnish indie rock band Branded Women and their 2006 album Cities and Seas. The show was fun for all concerned. Not Drowning Waving even have a small link to a 1976 Spanish disco hit. What is it? Keep listening and find out. listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Good evening, good afternoon, and good night. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 94. My name is Morris. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope you're well. And this is going to be a little bit of an unusual episode. Yes, we're here to talk about albums, and that's the constancy. That's what we like to do on this program. It's hopefully why you've tuned in. But unlike most times, I'm not at home. I'm recording here at Gilman Studios. 
I'm not speaking on Skype, at least not yet. I'll explain a bit more about that shortly. I'm not talking on my computer. I'm recording on a Zoom R16 multi-track recorder for all you people out there who care about such things. I'm not speaking through a headpiece. I'm recording using a couple of microphones, a Sennheiser E816S and a Soundart SGM V55D. Boy, this is getting boring and technical. And I'm not recording on a Sunday evening. It's Sunday approaching midday or something like that. As I said, I'm here in Gilman Studios, and it's known as Gilman Studios because I'm with my very good friend, my very long-time friend, Mr. Julian Gillis. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Morris, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be back with you again. I've been on um, Love That Album a number of times before, and I always feel that it's far too long between uh, stints for me, so it is a great pleasure to be back with you. I think I've been remiss then if it's been way too long. My damn shame. I, I mean, what was the last couple of things? We did a Monkeys episode. Yes, we, did, we, oh, we did Sweet. Matthew Sweet. Um, must be maybe about three years ago, I think we did Matthew Sweet. No, Matthew Sweet was like in the first 10 episodes we did. That would have been 2011. That's going right. <laughs> Right back to the very beginning. So that long, I, I, I'm surprised that it's that long ago, but um, still, it still uh, sticks very firmly in my mind. I, I really enjoyed doing uh, Matthew Sweet that day, and I have uh, on one, one or two occasions actually gone back and, and listened to that. And oh, wow. uh, every 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 so often, when uh, you know, when I'm feeling a bit really like I, I want to go back to some of the uh, some of my Matthew Sweet albums, I do like to uh, have a bit of a listen to it. To uh, to the podcast. To the podcast. Wow, gosh, I can't even bring myself to go back and listen to the early episodes, but maybe I better try and listen to that one out and see how many minutes I can go in before I start squirming, thinking, oh, I didn't edit it properly. Oh, I'm saying I'm and art too much and all that sort of thing. But anyway, never mind about the past. We're going to talk about today. Today is very, very exciting because we're going to be talking about an album that looms large in our lives. This was, I think in a way, the album that cemented us as friends. We'd known each other all our lives through school. But we really only started to bond, I think, when you introduced me to the album under discussion today. The album we're looking at today is Claim by Not Drowning Waving. For those of you people who are not in the know, and that might mean anyone outside of Australia, Not Drowning Waving, we're not necessarily big to the extent like you're in excess or you're cold chisels or... I don't know any of the other bands that were sort of like you know, predominant in in the eighties, but not drowning raving certainly they, they were you know far from being an obscure band. And David Bridie probably I'm wondering if he sort of went on to greater I don't like to use the word success, but certainly went on to a little bit more fame with the side project that came after Not Draining Waving, My Friend the Chocolate Cake. Hmm. And David's actually been extremely prolific over the period of what must be getting on now to 30-odd years hmm. um, because um, the album we're looking at today was uh, was one of the early Not Drowning Waving albums and it's just just on 30 years since uh, since that one, one was released. But he's done a huge amount of work um, in the meantime, as you mentioned, with My Friend the Chocolate Cake and he's also been involved in a number of other projects, including some uh, some really interesting movie scores. Mm, indeed. Well, so that's what's exciting about today's program is as well as Julie and I having a bit of a chat about Claim. And it's, it's not going to be the long type of chat that we normally do because we have an interview that we recorded a couple of weeks ago with David Bridie and he was very forthcoming with a lot of 
reminiscences and information about his time with Not Drowning Waving, about the recording of the album Claim, and a whole bunch of other things that we digressed onto. A very, very fascinating man. So uh, we'll be talking about that very shortly, uh, Julian and myself, and then we'll go on to uh, the interview that we did with David. Also further down in the program, Eric Reanimator comes back with his album I Love segment. And this time around, he's going to be speaking about a band from Finland, a band called Branded Women. I don't know if there are actually any women in the band. The name of the album is called Cities and Seas. The album's from 2006. And as I said, they're a Finnish band. And he goes on to describe them, I guess, as a sort of uh, indie pop band or an indie lounge band, actually. He, he said, I, I don't know that I quite get the jazz or the lounge context that he says in his description of the band, but certainly I really dug what I heard there. So see what you think when we get round to Eric's album, My Love segment. Uh, so what we'll do now at this point is go just to a quick break, then Julian and I will come back. And we'll have our own chat about Claim before going on to the interview that we did with David Bridie a couple of weeks ago. It's very, very exciting for us to have uh, spoken to someone who we so strongly admire. Just one of the perks of being able to do a podcast. I just, I love that. I don't know. Anyway, Julian and I will be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 94. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Westerns, comedies, foreign films, horror movies, action adventure, and classic cinema. Well, we don't have much of that, but if you like ass, titties, farting, burping, puffy nipples, poop, taboo porn, muffin tops, comic books, wrestling, mustaches, pie smashed on butts, cheese, taking baths, butt sex, gagging, milk, and the American flag, check out the Silva and Gold Podcast. We're the morons your mom warned you about while she was sitting on Silver and Gold. We talk about movies and shit. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And we're back. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 94. Once again, many thanks for joining us. I'm here with my good friend Julian Gillis here in Gilman Studios, The Attic Annex. We're here to discuss Not Draining Waving's album from 1989. Claim. It's, I think, album number four. So, Jules, while we'd known each other for quite a few years, as I said in the intro, we'd known each other through our schooling years, but I think it was really our love of this album. You introduced it to me, and it just absolutely blew me away. So I want to ask you, what was your introduction to Not Drowning Waving? Where did you first discover them? Well, I first discovered them um, in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, when I was watching an ABC TV show called Rock Arena. Rock Arena was on uh, late at night, uh, every Tuesday nights. And as a teenager and uh, and a student at that stage, uh, it was it was one of my guilty pleasures to uh, stay up late, watch some music videos on Rock Arena, and listen to a few interviews. And so, and one night I was watching Rock Arena, and they put on uh, a song called Yes, Sir, I Can Boogie. 
which was from the album prior to the one that we're talking about, that we'll be talking with David Bridie about today. That album was called Cold and the Crackle, and uh, which was, I think, released in 1986. And if you, if you go on and want to Google, uh, yes, sir, I can boogie. I would advise you strongly to avoid the Euro disco song of the same name. <laughs> I was I was going to mention this is not a cover version of that Euro disco hit. <laughs> No, absolutely not. It is very, very uh, different to that. I remember vividly watching this video of Yes Sir, I Can Boogie and being really drawn to it, absolutely gripped by it. And just to to paint a picture of who musically I was at that stage, I was a teenage boy and I liked to listen to commercial music and commercial music tends to have a fairly narrow band of musical types and some of of the, the Australian bands that Morris mentioned earlier on were real staples of commercial music and I was watching this video and it was the music was completely different completely different sound completely different type of rhythm and it was I was absolutely drawn to it it opened my eyes to the fact that there was music outside of this commercial type music that I was generally listening to and it was an absolute revelation to me and I remember vividly also the other thing that really grabbed me about this video was that it was it was all set in Melbourne so I was in front I was seeing all these iconic Melbourne landmarks in front of me the Melbourne cricket ground and as a massive football and cricket fan that of course grabbed my attention Flinders Street Station which is a, a huge Melbourne landmark uh, and traditionally people have met on the steps under the under the clocks at the Flinders Street Station uh, there was footage of these clocks in the video itself and with with this incredible music attached to it so it was a real attack on my senses it was it really grabbed me and so the first thing I did so I noted down the the name of this track and found out what album it was and then went into the city um, into the Melbourne CBD on the weekend and uh, I honestly can't remember I presume it must have been Gaslight um, that, was it, that was the shop to go to for all sorts of music and particularly for independent music so I went into the city and there I was and found myself a copy of Cold and the Crackle which I uh, so a vinyl of course a, a vinyl, I mean CDs were available but nowhere near as popular and I don't even think I had a CD player I still was using a turntable I was still twice the price at that time and ironically here in 2016 we find that CDs are probably about a third of the price of new vinyl nowadays so go figure well exactly and uh, but I've still got my vinyl copy of uh, of Cold in the Crackle oh, nice. that chance discovery of, of Yes Sir I Can Boogie on Rock Arena really changed my whole outlook on music and, and broadened my horizon and once that had happened suddenly having become aware of the fact that hey, there was all this other music out there, it led me to start to look at all sorts of other other music as well. So it was a really, really important experience for me and, and not drowning waving is really central to that. Mm. I guess as a um, point of reference for the uninitiated, we'll certainly be playing quite a few musical clips throughout the program. It should be painted out because, you know, Jules, you've already gone and stated there that you know they were certainly very different to what you were hearing a lot in the mainstream, but they're also very different to what might have been played on stations like Triple R or PBS 
at the time, at least on their sort of rock type programs, because, you know, as much as they didn't sound like, say, In Excess or Cold Chisel or Midnight Oil, but they also didn't sound very much like some of the other supposed alternative bands either. They didn't sort of really fit terribly much into either camp. And I guess we discussed that in some way with David in our chat, as well as sort of, you know, having the traditional Western style rock band set up, but they had a full time percussionist in James Southall, who I think is one of the great reasons for their success. You know, he just everything that he plays and with Rowan McKinnon on bass has a real groove to it. But before the term world music became a thing, they tended to blend rock music and I guess, you know, for lack of a better term, world music in a way that maybe few other bands do. I mean, in our interview, which you know, is coming up shortly, uh, you mentioned Peter Gabriel for very good reason, and it's quite easy to see why Peter Gabriel was attracted to Not Drowning Waving. David, as he mentions, he threw himself into the music of Papua New Guinea and their styles, and he understood both what he'd grown up with and what he was falling for musically in a big way when he was introduced to the music of PNG. And I think also that as an Australian band, it's, it's interesting, and we'll talk quite a bit with David about this, that there's some very Australian themes to it and also some use of Australian instruments. For example, the didgeridoo, which uh, which is used on uh, on one of the tracks of, uh, of Claim as well. Right, right. So we find that as Not Drowning Raving moved on through their albums, by the time they got to Claim, they'd actually pulled things back. Like in the early albums, as I think David mentioned, there were quite a few people playing on any individual track, like on, say, The Cold and the Crackle. Or By the time they got round to Claim, they had maybe about five core members and a few other tracks that had a couple of additional people, you know, a couple of additional session musicians. And there was a singer, I think Penny Hewson, who comes on to sing Willow Tree, probably if Helen Mantford had been a member at that stage, that would have been her role. As I said, by the... In the early days, they sort of did these more long, rambling, ethereal pieces. There were certainly songs in the traditional sense, but there was a greater emphasis on just starting something up and letting it see how long it ran in a very improvisational sense. And David has some stuff to say about that too. And I guess by the time they get to Circus, they're pretty much a full-on song band rather than these long ethereal pieces and both served the band very very well but it's just sort of interesting to see that development and i think claim sort of comes at a good point in the middle where they're still sort of doing a bit of the old style but sort of you can see that they're heading more towards a more traditional more conventional song structure and by the time that they got to doing or half the members of Not Training Waving sort of got into doing My Friend the Chocolate Cake, the side project, which became the full-time project. It's pretty much all song structure. There's no room for the long sort of ethereal type pieces that Not Training Waving were uh, well known for in, in their early days. Like, you know, songs like Yes Sir, I Can Boogie certainly exemplify that early style. But by the time they're coming to albums like Claim and they're doing songs like Willow Tree and fishing trawler which we talk about quite a fair bit in our discussion with him it's the more conventional song for lack of a better expression and i think also that claim one of the things that we'll see about claim is that it shows off the uh the quality of uh david Brady's songwriting mm. which is terrific and 
and, and there are some really interesting things about David's uh, writing, and particularly the way that you know he draws pictures. He's uh, he's very good at bringing out detail and creating an entire picture that you can really where you can really imagine yourself sitting with the character or looking at that particular scene and seeing what's going on. To that extent, that's why he certainly stands with the greats in this country, like you know your Paul Kellys and or your Mick Thomases who certainly like to go down and describe something in minute detail without it being picky or too detailed for its own sake. But it's just, I know that if I tell you this story about the, the colour shirt that this character is wearing or the fact that he's got a little bit of dirt in his hair, it tells you a lot more about the character than telling you 10,000 lines of some great brave deed that the character did. You know a little bit about him from how that character may hold himself and you know david had gone and expressed his admiration for you know great writers and great authors and he certainly has something of the the novelist or the the short story writer in his approach to songs and he likes to tell the small stories not necessarily the big ben-hur epics not that there's anything wrong with that either but what really draws me into him as a lyricist are his songs about just ordinary people and you go and ask him a question and you know i don't really mean to foreshadow terribly much of our chat because it's all very interesting when we get to it but you mentioned something to him about how he's drawn to Australian tales of the suburbs. And he says, well, why would I write about something I don't know? I've often found listening to a lot of other songwriters, a lot of other bands, they write about the suburbs in, you know, say, you know, the British or the American experience with a lot of disdain. I mean, we spoke about the Monkees a few years ago and one of their songs, Pleasant Valley Sunday, talks about having a barbecue in the backyard and these people are bland and all they talk about is the school council and, there's nothing else exciting in their lives. And you know, we could probably sort of think of who knows how many songs about the suburbs and all written with disdain. And David never does that. He's not saying, right, well, this is all you should aspire to. It's just he's saying, well, these are these people's lives and let's treat these characters with some level of dignity. And I really, really respect that. I really, really like that because, you know, face it, a lot of musicians, the, the people who are going to go see them in concert, the people who are going to buy their albums are people who live in suburbs. What's the big deal of trashing your audience? I don't get it. And as for the music, well, you'll hear some more evidence of that as we go along. I agree with that. He's painting them as they are and and without without any any negative or he's just simply saying that, yes, He's, he's he's giving us an insight into their lives. I think mm-hmm. that that's the thing, and in and into the way that that he sees them as a as a neighbour, as a person who lives in that area, as as a person who sees them going about their their day to day activities, and it, and it's something that a lot of songwriters, I suppose, like to go for, as you mentioned, grander themes. But there's an enormous amount that can be written about the day to day suburban existence. Or your your own backyard. It's what you know. And even on songs where he, you know, he could get very, very political. And certainly like, you know, the eighties, we were, we weren't short of your songwriters like, you know, Rob Hurst of uh, Midnight Oil or, or Shane Howard of Goanna writing the big political songs, you know, your, your US forces, your solid rocks and great songs both. But David takes a far more subtle approach on this song on Claim Terra Nullius. And really he could have gone to town on that, but. He chooses not to. He just chooses to tell a small story 
and that speaks volumes hmm. um, compared to what you know someone like uh, uh, Rob Hurst. And once again, I love Rob Hurst, but he would it takes a very different approach to what he would have done. I think. Yes, and I think there's a there's a subtlety about that where he he's putting that in front in front of us and effectively inviting us to think about it rather than saying to us, "This is the position. This is my view." He's not hammering us with the, with the lyrics of of that song. He's putting it there for us to digest. Hmm. But lest you think that David is overly serious then there are songs like wobble <laughs> yes morning but you never said wobble if you're not drowning raving fan you know that how special this tune is if you don't i'm not going to spoil it listen there's a, a very interesting discussion on just that tune all i can say is that Warner Brothers would not allow it in 2016. I think that's right, and and uh, certainly the lawyer in me wanted me, wanted to ask David all sorts of questions about the intellectual property aspects of <laughs> of that particular activity. Thank before I even had a chance to do that, David explained exactly what had what had gone on, and uh, yeah, it, it's fascinating. Wobble, as you say, wobble is a, is a, is an interesting song, and it's a song I think that that divides people. Um, I've heard people say make really scathing comments about Wobble. I, I love Wobble, um, but it's a song that, that really really divides people. You know, um, but personally, personally, I love it. The first time I was playing the album and you know heard these first opening tracks, you know Willow Tree and Fishing Trawler, and I thought, okay, I've got an idea where this band is coming from. Yeah, this is really really good. And then Wobble comes on, and I laughed myself stupid. I've got to listen to this track again. I've got to listen to this track again. Played it about three, four times in a row. It's a great dance tune if you want to put it I mean, that's something that they could have played in the nightclubs, but the sampling, which I don't want to give away just yet, but the sampling that they do in that, it's it's very, very funny. And it shows that these guys have a great sense of humour. It's not all serious. It's not all about politics or, or the little details of people's lives. Sometimes you just want to watch Warner Brothers cartoons and Boogie. That's that's it. I think we've we've gone and had a given you a bit of a brief background as to our love of not drowning waving. All right, so what we'll do now is we'll go to our uh, chat from a couple of weeks ago with David Brady, which was recorded on Skype. And I probably think that now is as good a time to mention as any that we do have a little bit of a sound issue with this interview. I know what was the cause, and this will not happen again. Don't get me wrong. It's far from unlistenable, and you can still hear everything quite clearly. But I highly recommend that you stick around to uh, listen through all the way through because uh, David has plenty that's interesting to say, and we had a great time chatting with him. But just in the light of fairness to you, uh, dear listener, I acknowledge that there is a little bit of a sound issue there. You'll see what it is. After the interview will be Eric Reanimator doing his album I Love segment, and then Julian and I will rejoin you after that to uh, close off, and I'll talk to you about next month's program. But anyway, enjoy our interview. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 94. You're with Morris and Julian. And welcome back to episode 94 of Love That Album podcast. Thanks so much once again for joining us. And on the other end of a Skype connection, Julian Gillis and myself are really, really privileged and happy to speak to Melbourne band leader, pianist, songwriter, soundtrack composer, 
David Bridey. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Evening, Julian and Morris. Thanks for joining us, David. The focus of this show is, as I've said in the early part of the program, is to discuss your album from 1989 with the band Not Drowning Waving called Claim. We'll yep. come to more claim-centric questions in a few minutes, but now, Not Drowning Waving first started as uh, yourself and John Phillips back, I believe, in 1983 with a tune called Moving Around. Uh, supposedly yep. is the first thing that you guys recorded. I'd be really interested in knowing what was yours and John's reference point. What was in your respective record collection? What did you bond over that made you sort of want to experiment and record a piece like Moving Around? In fact, he had a Wham record, which, <laughs> which if anyone knows John, is kind of nothing like the way he plays or sounds. But he, he didn't collect much music. I guess, look, we were just we were clearly listening to a lot of that sort of post-punk English music and Australian music of those days. So, you know, the early 80s was a, sort of, was a fair amount of kind of spacious new wave music, you know, some uh, that mixture of electronica and some acoustic stuff. So that, that was kind of in the, in the area, you know, the Saints and New Order and the Reels and Talking Heads and Bowie and all that kind of stuff. We had, again, using machines, we had, you know, an 808 drum machine and had this Juno um, 6 keyboard and we were recording on a four-track, you know, cassette four-tracks to do our demos. Yeah, so that's weird. That's how it's kind of started. That started in the bedroom. When you talk about some of those, um, some of those influences, Later on, uh, my friend The Chocolate Cake chose to cover magazine's song from under the floorboards. Had you always had a desire either to particularly do magazines, a cover of magazine or of that sort of band? Oh, no, I wasn't kind of into the idea of doing covers of bands that I like. I, I guess Fast Forward into Chocolate Cake, which was a totally acoustic act, and a magazine, of course, where um, uh, Dave Formula playing these great keyboards and Barry Adams and this sort of one of the few people to make a fretless bass sound fantastic and Howard Bader is a great lyricist and John McGeoch and all that and Chocolate Cake because it was acoustic you kind of could do a version of that would be that would be different because you know, so the Barry Adams and lines were played by Helen Mountford on Shallow and um, and it was also a song from on the floor but it was such a cracking pop song I thought we could kind of yeah so yeah so it was about having a different take on it but it's certainly a magazine or a band that created really interesting music and Howard DeVoto was a lyricist who kind of, he was a great, yeah, great songwriter, so um, a great lyric writer. So those two things were appealing at the beginning as well. Last month on the program, I was joined by um, uh, my friend Pat Monahan. We were discussing oh, yeah. uh, Treeless Plains by uh, the Triffords, and we yeah. both were sort of discussing about how certainly they were very unique in the Perth rock scene, and really even to a large extent the Australian music scene in general. There was no one else who really sounded like what they were doing. And uh, would you sort of say that the same thing would have been true for Not Draining Waving when they first started? A little bit, just because we were kind of grabbing influences from everywhere, from, from, from a bunch of different places. Firstly, Pat's got a great, his record store is one of the beauties. And the Triffids, a wonderful band and great people in it too. So um, they had something to, um, 
a sound. If you, if you take, I guess they were coming from Perth. I'm feeling like, look, I'm not sure where it, how it, maybe because Johnny just kind of out of the personalities that John and I had, but it, we did seem a little bit at odds with, in some ways, with a lot of the sound that was coming out of the Mel, coming out of Melbourne at the time. But we didn't really think that we were that different. We didn't think it was. Um, I mean, we were going along to the Crystal Ballroom and to the club and to um, Martinis and Hearts and all those kind of venues and seeing the acts and really liking the sort of the indie music scene of Melbourne at the time. So we weren't, we weren't making a stand against anything. I think piano was an instrument I really, really liked playing. That affected the sound a bit. And also John was quite keen at the beginning of doing, setting a plan that wasn't all about playing live gigs. In fact, John didn't want to play live at all at the very beginning. So I think that led to some of the doing instrumentals and doing some material that was more about being on a record than playing in a an in-suburban pub where most of the music venues were. That music in the early days, a lot of it sounds, I mean, I guess, you know, the word ethereal has probably been bandied about quite a lot, but... How much of it was improvised and how much of it was actually composed? Oh, look, the first two records, another poem in the Little Desert, there were probably three pieces on each record that we improvised, not in a jazz kind of way, more in a... Um, Johnny I used to use more around playing on the piano and he would play his guitar sound was effects late and um, had an edge to it that it kind of... Uh, and we just kind of quite create these kind of space things. When I say space, I mean playing with a lot of space in the music so that we could just kind of fill in. Here and then we did some, we did a light to air on PBS and I think we improvised the whole, like we had some loops scattered out amongst, you know, like from four minutes to eight minutes, it'd be this one loop that would come with, that would be a drum loop and then from nine minutes to 13 minutes, it'd be the sound of this tram looped on itself and, and we just, it was just this one-off radio show. I think Jamie, our percussionist, not Jamie Wagon played as well, and the three of us just made it up over the 45 minutes. It was probably a little bit like the next without as good musicianship. It was so it wasn't like it, this jazz thing, but it was so it was trying to create these these moods and exploring where sort of noise and music meet. And so there's a, a little bit of that on those first actually call the crackle as well. There's um and certainly folks like Moran Rust on Climb. Yes, Texas Jacks on Tabaran as well, other Hay and Call Across the Highlands were also in that area. I guess that's as good a point as any to um, start talking about claim proper. Claim yeah. always struck me as Certainly what would have been side one in particular as being more, for lack of a better word, conventionally song-oriented. Those early albums, as you said, had the longer pieces and had some level of impro work or at least a chance for you to stretch out to uh, set a mood. But you know, when you have songs like you know Willow Tree and Fishing Trawler, which have maybe not conventional pop-sounding songs, but they, but they are more song-structured. Awesome. Did, you, did you sort of come to a point where you thought, like, we want to strip this back. We want to try doing something a little bit more conventional, for lack of a better word. The same heat and storm on Little Desert, mate, and moving around and uh, hunting for nuggets on another pond. They were kind of straight, more straight-up songs. After the first two records, and even gradually, uh, certainly Tim, Cole and uh, Russell Bradley and Ryan McKinnon were becoming... Uh, involved in James Southall by Colin Crackle, absolutely. So by this point, we were rehearsing as a as a six piece. It's the first two records with John and I in a little flat in you know Paran or in Parkville or something with with the four track. But now from Colin the Crackle onwards, we've been a lot of the playing we were doing was was as a band. And so tracks like Willow Tree and Fish and Shore and Wobble and Palau and Yellow Earth were certainly um, you know they, they were certainly band songs that were 
And we're also playing live a lot more then. So the, the point before about John not wanting to play live, because we, we hardly played live at all for another pond. I think we did about three gigs. Uh, Little Desert we sort of started playing. But our first proper tour was the Cold and the Crackle. And playing live kind of affected the sound a bit. And maybe as a six-piece too, we wanted to get, or we may be thinking that we needed this to kind of, wanted to get stuff that worked on the radio as well. You mentioned fishing trawler there, and in fishing trawler you sing about how you've been tumbled and sorted and turned inside out by all this colour and movement, and then you follow up and everything is how it should be. Just interested in how those lyrics work together. There's a, a real feeling of, of things being turned upside down, of disjointedness and discontentedness, and then everything is how it should be. First of all, I was just interested in that thought and also whether thematically it doesn't necessarily seem that everything is how it should be. Some of the songs have some really strong content about things that you're not happy about. about the you know fishing guys down on the coast so the tumbled and sort is probably as much to do with being having the hell blown out of you by the ocean winds and um you know throwing life up in the air and uh you know got the uh, the women washing in chubs and throwing things around so yes so the, the, that fishing trawl thing of everything is how it should be is um uh, living life on the fringes and out in the elements and having a devil may care attitude Palau and Terranali is certainly kind of looking into that, you know, our region. Palau and the Pacific and Terranali is in, uh, in the outback and the track claim as well about that. Uh, yeah, certainly not everything is how it should be in the way that the European world has come to deal with this, this region in the Pacific and in Oceania. But yeah, look, Willow Tree is probably a little bit like Fishing Shore in the sense that it's that's kind of like a, uh, a rented in a suburban house in Richmond, so Willow Tree is quite autobiographical actually. In fact, one of the guys who I ran to the house with, Bob, is actually name-dropped in the song. So um, yeah, Willow Tree was a uh, song about in a suburban rented house and people dropping in and the kind of neighbourhood in the suburban thing. So that was yeah, that, that had a bit of a link to um, Fish and Shawler and that's, uh, yeah, everything's how it should be kind of vibe. And Wobble did as well, even though it was an instrumental. What was kind of interesting because, uh, well, the interesting thing of Wobble is, so we sampled Warner Brothers cartoon. So sample Daffy and Bugs, you know, who probably the you know, two most recognisable cartoon characters up until The Simpsons came along. And then we were signed to Warner Brothers as well in America. And, but we never had to pay a cent 
or there was never any issue at all with getting the clearance to sample that duck season rabbit season. Which is kind of proof that it was um, the record claim was on the cusp for a few records. It's the last record where no, Tabaram was last record, but where we had vinyl and CD. But it was also must have just been before all the hip hop sampling and house music sampling um, situation came about, where people were having to pay for the rights for those samples because there was never anything uh, brought up about it. And whilst you know, like it wasn't, uh, I'm probably the most successful, not the only waving record, but no. I'm themselves that it kind of was this uh, massive record, but I guess because we were assigned to a reprise in the States that released it as well, we were part of Warner Brothers, and it was a Warner Brothers cartoon. Maybe that's why it was. Maybe they kind of turned a blind eye. So there was never any question from your management or from anyone else in the band at the time saying, oh, hang on, are we allowed to use it? No, 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 we just, we just nicked it. And um, <laughs> until, until that kind of called, you know, it, it was kind of, it was used in a different context. So it was, but it was also at the time where you need to cue the cassette up to be able to play it at a gig with mixed results <laughs> in terms of you know, getting it on time. Julian's already mentioned that he saw a running theme through claim of how things should be or how things shouldn't be. I also sort of, maybe because I had too much time on my hands, sort of worked out in, in my head that it might have been like a concept album because, you know, the title claim, I mean, ob- the obvious inferences, you know, from songs like, you know, Terra Nullius and, and the title claim itself. But it seems to me that also, you know, the characters, you write these beautiful small stories, like in Willow Tree, you're staking a claim on your childhood memories and and the characters in fishing trawler you know maybe they're staking a claim on their happiness and how things should be in their lives am i drawing a rather long bow here is that i don't think i'm clever enough to make that <laughs> the claim certainly i actually it's more than that the claim was definitely linking with uh, Terra Nullius and then, because Terra, that became two songs because I wrote that song and, you know, the whole concept of Terra Nullius being as crazy as, as it was and it had this kind of atmosphere to it. We also worked with this fellow, Nonya Rawatari, who's um, a deep player or a Yadaki player and Nonya replied on the bass of Terra Nullius, but it, it didn't kind of work with the song. So we decided to make two tracks out of it. The instrumental claim that is the last track on the record and that follows Terra Nullius. It's actually the same track, but um, uh, with different elements put in, uh, with different uh, instrumentation, a lot of stuff muted and some things affected. The title of the record was about those two, but Sweat also, so those last three tracks, Sweat had these these samples of these um, 
Melanesian Papua New Guinean uh, vocals and lutes that just kind of sit there as an instrument in the, in the background. So those last three tracks are kind of in that area. The second side of the album wasn't so much conceptual as those tracks fitted well together, but they were very much about the Pacific and about Indigenous Australia in terms of the songs and, and how they sound. I do want to come back for a second to Wobble. It features mandolin playing from uh, occasional Not Draining Raving contributor and uh, original member of My Friend the Chocolate Cake, Andrew Carswell, who um, yeah. we sadly passed away earlier on this year. What are your recollections of uh, working with him in Not Draining Raving and how did you first meet? Andrew is my boss. I worked, I had this great job when, before I could make a living out of music, I worked in a community residential unit out in Greensboro. And so it was a house where these five Wards of the state who also had intellectual disability, a mild intellectual disability, lived in this house. So we'd sort of go there and play sport with them on the weekend and make sure they got to school and all that kind of stuff. And Andrew was the the um, house supervisor. Mm. Um, but we also found a lot for uh, uh, music, similar love of the Velvet Underground and so forth, both Barry from Melbourne, the same footy team. So I'm... Um, and you see, Andrew came and um, I'll just when we were putting down, so he played on Yes Sir Rock and Boogie on Cold and the Crackle and Kerry's Green, and he played on Wobble on Claim, and uh, he'd come on tour a few times, but he was only playing in three or four tracks. So um, I do remember a night we played at this gig called La Rocks in Adelaide, and uh, we supported some I can't even remember the band because we actually didn't hang around and see them. They were sort of sort of some you know, biggish kind of mid-80s band. And it was pissing down with rain and um, we went back to our hotel and we kind of probably drank a bit too much and got a call from the main band to come back and we had to load the PA out at the end of the night, otherwise we wouldn't get paid. Oh, no. And, yeah, and it was pissing down. I remember, you know, lugging this PA down these wet steps thinking someone's going to get killed here. Andrew was so wrecked the next morning he actually got on the train back to Melbourne and he missed the gig that we were doing the following night. He was, that's not actually a good example of Andrew's personality because later with Chocolate um he was very good at touring but I, I, I always remember that night. Uh, David, you mentioned that you and Andrew had a shared love of uh, Melbourne Football Club and I read a, a lovely article recently that was in the Melbourne Age a couple of years ago by Martin Flanagan in which he described how you became really quite emotionally invested in the PNG footy team when it played in the International Cup. And with My Friend the Chocolate Cake, you um, you had the song um, Jimmy Stein's about the Melbourne captain. motivated to write lyrics referencing football? I look if it felt like the right thing to do. Those kind of songs can fail badly if they're not done in the right way. But Paul Kelly, who's one of the great, great songwriters, very adept with lyrics and getting the right emotional tone on everything. I think his two worst songs are the ones about Donald Bradman and Shane Warne. So um, <laughs> it's, it's probably an area to uh, avoid a little bit. Oh, Jimmy Stines was a very kind of emotional... Uh, 
Thank you. He's his great figure because he was a footballer who clearly used his fame to um, push an agenda with uh, vulnerable youth. So he's better than you know your normal footballer. He came from Ireland in his biography. He talks about great grandfather being in the IRA and all that. So he's, he's, he's not your not your normal footballer. But uh, and a few people had approached about writing a song about Jimmy Stein. But yeah, I, I always I've always found it a bit difficult to be able to get the nuance right. So have you made an attempt to write something before? And yeah, it's sitting in an exercise book somewhere up in the. <laughs> I've kind of got a lot of lot of words with a lot of crossings out. I was saying to Julian how I recall that depending on your audience when you were doing a Chocky Cake gig would be how you would introduce that tune. You know, if it was a, a crowd that you thought were you know full of football lovers, you'd say, and here's our next tune, and it's uh, my dedication to the Melbourne great Jimmy Steins. But I remember I think you might have played one gig at the Prince of Wales Hotel in St Kilda where there was an art auction and you introduced it. And here's a tune dedicated to a, a sportsman I'm rather fond of called James Steins. And <laughs> did you purposely adapt that or was it you just, oh, this is what I feel like doing? Well, look, if we were playing a gig in you know, overseas, you'd have to be, who wouldn't know, wouldn't be able to reference him, that that would be a total... Uh, Totally different things. But yeah, look, you're always safe band is always a guess into what the audience, <laughs> uh, and a little bit to do with how you're feeling as well. But, um... You've long had a passion for Papua New Guinea. We've already sort of spoken a little bit about it in reference to Palau, and uh, you know, both with musical and political concerns. Were Palau and earlier songs like Sing Sing developed around specific songs that you'd heard? Really, how were you introduced to the music of Papua New Guinea? And look, I'd always, I mean, it's Australia's closest neighbour, so I'd always been aware that it was there. I think I had cousins who I didn't actually see much, but I know that my cousins were missionaries up in Papua New Guinea. I know my uncle had fought there during the uh, Second World War, and then in the early days of not drowning weapons, a guy named Mark Worth, who was a uh, of the Super 8 film club in Melbourne. Mark's father was in the Navy in Lombrum, which is on Manus Island, which is actually the same site as where the um, horrendous asylum prison is on Manus Island now. But Mark did the visuals for Not Drowning Wagon, so for the first few years he would bring projectors, 16mm projectors and Super 8 projectors and, um, and, and do the projections of video uh, behind the stage. Mark also did... Uh, visuals for the models, he also did it for Wild Dog Rodeo. He would regale us with stories about Papua New Guinea. So that's where that and Sing Sing came out of. Mark was doing a Super 8 film set in the Ninigo Islands to the west of Manus. Do I belong Ninigos about the hell they used to build canoes out of logs that came out from the Seapic River and floated uh, 200 kilometres out to sea? And these people on these atolls that didn't have big trees at all would go out in their canoes and, and kind of corral these big logs into the island and then make these ocean-going outrigger, these massive boats. And this was like, yeah, I, I guess as a you know, mid-twenties and it fascinated me as a story and started listening to some music from Manus Island which had, they had these garamut drums there, these um, slit log dr- drums, so big pieces of wood that are hollowed out and they have these ensemble style drumming going on with it. And so the track Sing Sing became like with Russell on drums and James on congas, it was like, and then I think Roland and Johnny and uh, Helen also played, also came and picked up any sticks and stuff. Half of us who were really bad drums, but the idea was layering up these simple rhythms up so that it became something of complexity later on. And that's kind of how Garamut drumming worked.
the top we flew these kind of big sort of droning keyboards and John would play this feedback guitar and um, and we'd also fly in samples of, of vocals. And it became this song that was on three different records recorded in three different ways. And the third time was when we did Tabaran, which was up in Papua New Guinea and uh, so it was um Sixing was this huge song to knock down anyway. I mean it always kind of was the last song we played a gig. It was really enjoyable to play the kind of the crowd kind of got into us. You know, no one except for the drum police in the Melbourne music scene would get too dark on us for the fact that half could play drum. So that was kind of the start of that interest in PNG. And I owe so much to Mark because, look, you know, as I sit in the studio tonight, I'm working on this project for um, called Abidnatar, which is working with Jules Shalek, who's in the Tabaran record, and um, a, whole, a whole bunch of uh, different Tolo people from Rabaul and uh, so that kind of passion and the opportunities that it has given me, I owe a lot to Mark Worth for kind of having introduced me to this place that he clearly was very much in love with as a filmmaker. Do you find that recording environment plays a lot into how you guys went and played? Because you know you recorded in you know this in uh, the studio in Papua New Guinea for Tabaran, and you recorded in Monsalvat, and I read you recorded in in a scout hall in Elstonwick. Claim itself was recorded in Sing Sing Studios, I think, in Richmond. Does environment or was one studio more like another? I, mean, I guess Papua New Guinea would have been somewhat different because when you stepped out of the studio, you were somewhere away from home. But did where you were affect your mood or how you composed? I mean, the two of those with the P&G reference, uh, Sing Sing and uh, Pacific Gold in Rebel, they were two of the best studios we've ever recorded in because Rebel actually had quite a music industry and Sing Sing was just, I, I think it's probably named after the prison more than, but it was um, coincidental or that they had that name for some of the records that we did there. But we, we, at the beginning, it was more to, more to do with what we could afford so another pond, Little Desert, Cold and the Crackle, were all recorded at places where, I mean, most of that we got for nothing, but we recorded there like at night. So we'd record from 10 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning in the, the Great Hall there, and it was fantastic. And uh, the Scout Hall, which I think was also a church in uh, Elston, where we had to record at night too because it was right on Orong Road. But we, I think I know the one. Yeah, we, we just had this, we just had that enthusiasm and youth and, you know, you kind of, musicians are idiots at that age, we do, you do anything to kind of make it work. Um, and because it was fun, you know, because it was fun, you just hang out and no one had any responsibilities. So, um, I mean, the idea now of starting a recording session at 10pm and finishing at 6 in the morning, unless you're kind of jet lagged, you wouldn't be able to do it. And this is sort of brought out a little bit by... David Byrne and that How Music Works book, when he's talking about when you know, Talking Heads were rehearsing, they were all playing, you know, in these bed sits and, you know, they were jamming on these songs and all the sounds were bleeding into each other. But then they'd go into the studio, and this is especially the case in the 80s, and you, everything would be isolated. That The aim of the engineer was to make sure there was no bleed in the music at all, which was totally polar opposite from how you'd be rehearsing or how the songs were played. It's an interesting point with claim because one of the things I find difficult about the record is the snare sound on Willow Tree is kind of, it is so of that era. Yes. That sort of gated snare. And John Frank, who mixed it, is, is a really talented uh, uh, mixer and a, and a wonderful guy. It was just, it was just part of that. All the records we were listening to were doing it as well. It was, it was sort of that AE sound of all those, um, the, the big drum sound that kind of comes in. Sometimes, sometimes they're wonderful, but uh, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, uh, I mean, the, the drum sounds that Martin Hannett pulled on, you know, closer by television are, are wonderful. They work really, really well. And you know, the the passion, the soundtrack to the Last Temptation of Christ by Peter Gabriel, that works really, really well. 
Yeah, Phil Collins' CDO record is perhaps one of the worst things ever in the It's kind of hard on him. David, you mentioned Peter Gabriel there, and you, not drowning waving, supported him on his 1994 tour. How did that come about? came about because of the Jabberan record, which uh, he was a fan of, and ended up putting George Telek, who's the main vocalist on that Jabberan record from Rabaul, a big music figure in PNG, and uh, Real World released Sirius Home, the second album of George's, and also sponsored him to tour at uh, WOMAD, gigs in Germany and the UK and in the States as well. So, um, uh, and that's what led to the, the Australian tour. And, and how, how was that experience? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, no, it was really good. It was, um, they had, a, he had a phenomenal band with him and it was because, look, when, when you're playing the support slot in those Norman domes, those big, you know, big venues, it can be, you know, there are better gigs in your life, but it was a great opportunity. Certainly, it was uh, really enjoyable watching their set and watching how they went about it. There was one gig that we did where we in Sydney at the end of the tour, and we got taken. I kid you not, to a restaurant out in the Hawkesbury. We got flown there by seaplane from the harbour, and we went and had lunch, and we drank wines that were way better than what we had ever tasted in our lives. And we got a little bit. We kind of got into it a bit, and turned out. Four o'clock, we had to head back to the Three Weeds, the Rose, Shamrock and Thistle in Balmain for a gig that we were doing that night. And um, after we got in the seaplane to return back to Sydney and then get in the uh, car to go out to uh, get driven out to uh, Balmain, and then we're in Soundtrack, a gaffer-taped sticky carpet venue, and the um, the wines had, wines had worn off and it was, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it make you feel like you wanted more of the big rock star lifestyle? Yeah, no, we never quite managed to pull it off. But, um, yeah, no, we were kind of, uh, we were probably more of a three-weeds band than a, than the seaplane uh, sea idea. Although, uh, actually, you kind of get used because from then on, festivals became a big thing. That was when the big day out was starting to sort of, I kick off them now, certainly, whether it be WOMADS or um, there's more festival gigs now um, than they were there. So you do get used to playing bigger stages and venues um, and having to tailor your set around that way. So I guess we did adjust somehow. One thing that sort of become more obvious in your own solo work, I think, is your love of groove. It might not be the first thing that comes to mind when Name Not Drowning Raving is mentioned, but songs like you know, Fishing Trawler and you know, the aforementioned Wobble, and in a very different way, I guess Palau all have a real sense of groove. And you know, when we get later onto the Circus album, you know, songs like Penmon in particular, and the two big reasons in my mind are mentioned Jamie Saddle on percussion and Rowan McKinnon on bass, and you know, not to undersell, I guess, you know, uh, Russell Bradley as well. But uh, the bass and the congas absolutely sort of really propel the groove. How much of the arrangements for that sort of style was in your head as a songwriter? And how much did those guys contribute? And it's true too that Russell had a um, a group to him together, but that, those three made it 
easier to push the rhythmic element, oh, which I have a full-time percussionist in the band in the same way as that uh, towards the end of having a full-time cellist in Helen Mountford means that those aspects of the songs are there all the time. So Jamie certainly gave us a groove and he gave us an under-rhythm as well. Rowan had a fair amount of funk in his playing. Um, that certainly worked. But in, in a song like Palau and Sweat, and yes, they're often boogie in the previous record, Russell would forego the, the drums and also play hand percussion with Jamie. And so you had this kind of, these kind of lugubrious grooves that they kind of could work up. And then the songs and the chords would fit over the top. And Johnny had a rhythm to his playing as well. He had a... Um, I mean, I guess uh, even if, even yourself as a pianist, you're more of a, a rhythmic piano player than, say, like a Ben Folds type of pianist, to a, a, an extent is uh, helping propel that group. Yeah, a little bit. I was kind of thinking of a bit clunky, but um, yeah, it's certainly the sort of that left hand, right hand pushing of the piano, you can get kind of rhythms up that way. And it, I mean, keyboards are a good instrument for that kind of thing as well, especially later on when you're sort of starting to use keyboards that are, are triggering a whole lot of different sounds. So sometimes you actually are playing kind of percussion parts there. That's sort of, I'm not very away from starting from that sort of very sort of atmospheric thing that was just John and I up to, I mean, Sing Sing being the song all the way through it, but then. Um, um, so it became more rhythmical, but also for a band that made records that people thought were pretty, you know, that you'd listen to pretty softly, we were a pretty loud band life. And so those rhythm things, uh, you know, Russell used to belt drums a fair bit. Um, Johnny was very loud on stage. So it did kind of, it, it did, it was like a truck that got its speed up. David, we, we've talked a bit about the um, your lyric. You do really excellent character studies, and you you bring out some interesting and fairly simple concepts. So I've, I've always loved the line, "Old Lucy next door, hosing down the front footpath." God knows why she thinks it has to be clean. articulates a thought that we might all have had but never actually verbalised. Have you ever sort of seen yourself possibly as a writer or felt very inspired by, by authors? Well, I'm certainly inspired by authors. I mean, great books and great writers have taken on the world that, um, is, uh, that motivates and inspires and um, that you can lose yourself in. Uh, and there's certainly, I mean, it's one of the great things about songwriting is to... Uh, you can create you know, metaphors with words, which can create stories, and it's, um, I mean, bands and songwriting is about that, uh, the marrying of uh, melody and rhythm and uh, words and images. So there is, you know, that. I mean, the, the novel is such a, a different kind of discipline because it's, um, I mean, you've got to keep the train of thought going over 350 pages and get that sort of narrative arc is a school the songwriters don't have. Although we often think that we'd like to, we'd like to, we'd like to have it, and certainly a, uh, an ambition somewhere in there. The uh, Lucy was a real character. She, she sort of next door, so 
in this house in Richmond. So just as an example of that eccentricity that we, we get this kind of and um, that neatness that we have in the suburbs, you know, clipping roses and sculpting hedges, having those neat lines between the lawns and the uh, concrete footpaths and, and then, you know, hosing down leaves of a concrete nature strip. I guess sort of to expand further on that, you know, because like Julian's already sort of brought up that it's possibly the attention to small detail that makes a lot of your songs such a great riveting listen rather than trying to tell a big, broad paintbrush sort of story that you're saying, like in, in songs like uh, Thomas Town, primary school children on the gravel schoolyard, they've got grins that start at one side and go all around. And, you know, there's, you, you already mentioned about uh, Old Lucy Next Door, but also in Chalky Cake songs like, you know, Uncle Bill's Paddock and Nanny's Farewell, it's the small detail. And I'm not sure, maybe that's not a novelist thing, maybe it's more of a short story sort of thing, but that's why I guess we both sort of felt that you were maybe like an author disguised as a songwriter. Is that something that you've always done where you've gone and made observations of other people and made notes about the little things? Is it something that specifically appeals to you? I like that in songs, I like that in other songwriters um i love the way that uh, some ways of the world can, can can paint these characters in i've been um the suburbs have been a place where songs come from and it's where i was so it's been my you know a lot of my life so it's um kind of a fascinating thing those characters i look up i mean saying before about admiring the way that novelists can write um, something that holds holds that arc is something i'm very envious of and i've uh it's just one of those things that just kind of discipline yourself to doing it. You might be able to master the craft, maybe have to take more time uh, to be able to do it. But certainly the, the lyricists that I might have, and going back to Howard DeVoto as well, sort of, they wrote about interesting characters and those lyrics and songs, that's something that appeals to me, sort of you know, sketching characters or situations. And in doing so, did you particularly want to recognise your Australian origins in your music by you know, talking about Australian suburban life where not many bands have done very much of that? What would the other option be? Yeah, I mean, the other option would be to write about Louisiana or write about, you know, being in the Deep South in America or um, certain aspects of Australia that are probably very similar to the Deep South of America. You write about what you what you know, and that's been, for me, it's been part of this uh, thing of writing about Australia, whether it be the, you know, the suburbs of the desert or about, you know, why the hell we, as a nation, have this egalitarian spirit and this kind heart, but we are right up there with the worst nations in the world when it comes to policies like asylum seekers or, you know, putting kids in detention. So there's sort of some, it's a, an odd place, but also writing about Papua New Guinea or about East Timor or about West Papua. I mean, these are the places that are close to Australia. And these, this is this is our world. This is our part of the world. And so it's not, actually, it's not just the negative stuff about it. It's also, this is a fantastic part of the world. So there's a lot of real positives about being close to a, a region that has this dynamic history, that has this, um, this potential for engagement. And unfortunately, we don't take hold of. But uh, if we could, it would be just this kind of vital thing. So as an artist, 
you know, in some ways really privileged to be being this part of the world. It's a great place to be. We are surrounded by a very unique region, whether that's about, you know, the kind of natural world that's in our near vicinity or the, you know, the history of politics or the um, you know, circumstances or, you know, stories like, you know, blackbirding or about gold prospectors in the highlands of Papua New Guinea or about, you know, the Macassans coming down to, you know, the Yongle people in northern Australia or about the um, Islamic camel drivers who pioneered the time in the centre and their relationship with the, you know, Kitanjara and the desert people all around there or um, Menzies being such a, you know, wanted to be so like England or, you know, and then so many different characters over the um, world, the Chinese that came here to the I guess I'm going on there about this place is so inherently interesting. Why would you want to write stuff about anywhere else? And that, I would imagine, applies to whether you're a filmmaker or a novelist or a songwriter. But too frequently we get songwriters who don't really look at what's happening around them. They look at, or, or they, I guess they think about, well, what's a standard pop formula song to write about or we'll we'll write about something that we don't really know anything about but it's topical and we'll just try and put a spin because that's going to sell us so i mean there's really very much an honesty in what you do and what paul kelly does and you know regardless of whether you like bradman but you know he does have that passion for cricket so that's something he loves and we, i mean chris wilson you mentioned black birding before you know he went and wrote a song about that and it's great when i you know my favorite songwriters are the ones who seem to look at the small detail and look directly at what's happening around them or has happened around them uh, chris was a phenomenal performer oh, currently ambrose does get mentioned in uh, great expectations of the last one from chocolate cake record so i'm not averse to name dropping critics um <laughs> But Curly Ambrose, of course, as he would be being about you know, six foot eleven and looking like us, he played bass in a dub band in Jamaica. So oh. not in Jamaica, not true. I guess the point with that is it's like in the film industry, there are this there's the kind of the mainstream crappy kind of film industry that do make films that have a big uh, selling point and they're not interested in doing anything except selling, you know, new weekly magazines and merchandise and uh, money. They're, they're, very, they're very clever in that way that they work technically, but they're not trying to do anything more than be a commercial product. And there's that, there's an example of that in the music industry as well. And then there's, you know, music that is, uh, you know, existing, you know, in an artistic realm films do that, novels as well. And then there's some that manage to uh, straddle the two worlds, and that's quite rare, but you do, you know, it uh, occasionally happens, and that's to be rejoiced as well. So that's a good segue to briefly talk about film because you've worked as soundtrack composer for quite a number of years. In 2016, I've been seeing things on Facebook about a restoration of the fantastic film from the early 90s, Proof. I think is it 25 years since its release. Have you had anything to do with, with the people since they've been doing the restoration? Have you been asked to remix the music or, or anything like that? Because Not Drowning Raven came up with the score for that great film.
got it was it was remastered basically and, and um, quite amazing because like 25 years ago whilst it's a long time ago you wouldn't have thought that a print of a movie like that would have been damaged but it had been but my link with that there's a wonderful guy named Michael Ludenstein who's the head of the National Film and Sound Archive in Australia Michael's also on the board of the One Took Music Foundation that I'm the director of and um, he a great guy and uh, that was part of their brief to restore what they're saying were important Australian films. Jocelyn Morehouse, the director, had made a really strong film with proof and uh, you know, great performances by Genevieve Pico and uh, Hugo Weaving and uh, Russell Crowe's first film. He's astonishing. You, know, you can't actually see why he went on from there. So we went to the launch of it at the Melbourne Film Festival, which was fantastic, but that was the only involvement that we had there. But it was certainly a, uh, a great soundtrack to be involved in that. Have you found, working as a composer over the years, did you find that so the early music that you were doing with Not Drowning Waving predisposed you towards that? Yeah, maybe it gets back to what we are talking about with Another Pond at the first, and you know, the point about John not really wanting to play live all the time. And I was, and when we were both into that sort of semi-improvised spacious music, but also very interested in using non-musical sounds, so whether it be recordings of old men talking or on claim, speaking of people who have passed away, not only Andrew Carville, but the wonderful uh, percussionist John Murphy, who played with Ollie Olsen and No and uh, sort of Orchestra Skin and Bone. And um, John played some bowed cymbals on Sweat and uh, he also played percussion rhythm on some skulls. John was very much into that sound aspect and... That's another thing to mention about Jamie Southall, the percussionist in Not Drowning Wave, which, and he's that plays a fair role in the, the soundtrack to Proof. That was kind of interesting too because the rest of us, like Tim Rowan and Ian Russell and Johnny Rural, sort of into sort of in suburban sort of post-punk music and everything. James was a little bit older and James was into things that I used to find absolutely... I just had no connection with the music at all. That you know, he'd listen to, he'd be getting into some things like, you know, Weather Report and uh, Santana, that sort of cussing. And I, I can't stand the music, but I can appreciate how great the musicianship is. And I can also appreciate they sort of get into those areas where the sort of improv bits where um, kind of creating these textual moods and uh, it was always a guitar sound that I could never come at. But um, And that sort of... I found that sort of musicians showing off, which I always thought was a little bit in both those bands. But there were areas, and, and in songs like Sweat or in some of the percussion pieces on Proof, it was like sitting on this percussive feel that Jamie was playing, and we just kind of sit on the mood of it. And I guess those kind of strange influences coming from all different uh, areas allowed us to kind of create part of that sound. All right. Uh, Julian, do you have any final questions? No, um, nothing more from me. But It's been uh, fascinating to speak to you, David. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Morris. Yeah, a bit of waffling going on there. Oh, no, that's what makes the interview interesting. Thanks very, very much for your time, David. Julian and I will be back after this break. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 94. We've been talking with David Brady.
Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. A one, two, a one, two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. Salutations, all you Love That Album listeners. This is Eric Ranmater back with an Album I Love segment. This time, something that's going to seem a lot different until I get into it from my normal fare. Maybe for 2017, I'll put out a bingo card where every time I, you know, I, every time I mention some of the things that I'm always going over, punk rock or Sweden or cowpunk or whatever, that you can, you know, scratch off or put a mark on the bingo anyways this is branded women in their album cities and seas from 2006 released on the ranch label uh get ready to uh mark off that bingo thing they are from finland so uh and there's not a lot of information about them discogs list them as lounge slash indie rock i think of them as being jazzy which is the where the lounge comes in but just kind of relaxing, not obnoxious indie music. Let's take a listen. Wow. 
Branded Women are one of those bands I found via the high-energy rock and roll scene from the Nordic countries. Specifically, they're on the Pushing Scandinavian Rock to the Man compilation, which I actually did cover on a compilation edition of Love That Album. Uh, they're different, obviously. They're not playing you know, Motorhead or ACDC-style rock and roll, but there's definitely a rock within their sound that I find accessible, and they definitely have an energy and they kind of tap into that dark side of what we would consider surfer instrumental rock you know I'm thinking like the shadows or maybe not quite the tornadoes but some of that Santo and Johnny-esque kind of more sleepy noiry surf guitar sounds I also hear a lot of light jazz and the kind of stuff that say Nora Jones was doing in this album so if that's something you're into this is a great album to put on during a, a party or any of those kinds of uh, gatherings where you don't want something that's going to be obnoxious and obtrusive, that's not going to be scaring your guests away, but it's going to be something a little bit different for background music. It's also just a great album to listen to. So, I'm going to play another track or two and get on out of here. Hope you guys dig uh, Branded Women. This is Eric, and I'll catch you next time. Oh,
thanks to uh, David Brighty for his earlier interview and many thanks to Eric Reanimator for his album I Love segment. He'll be back next month with another segment and also back with his compilation edition. And it was great to have the opportunity to talk to David Brighty. He provided us with some, some really interesting thoughts and uh, some insights and quite a, quite a bit of information that uh, we, wouldn't, we didn't otherwise know about the album. So really glad uh, that we had the opportunity to have him on. Indeed. All right. So um, at this stage, I should say once again, thank you very much, Jules, for uh, being my co-captain on this program. Thank you, Morris. It's always a pleasure. We won't leave it another few years before the next one. Shame on me. We'll have to find out what the uh, next one is. We'll hopefully have you back in 2017 rather than 2019 or something like that. I look forward to it. Mm. All right, so let's talk about October. I'm inviting back uh, a fellow who uh, I I think I'm trying to remember when he was last on. It would have been maybe the beginning of last year. Gosh, it's going back a long way. If you're a fan of the Stinking Paws film podcast and those of you who know me know that I certainly am. That's a show that's helmed by Charlie Mahoney and Scott Stinking Paws, I guess. They cover movies in a very, very entertaining and informative way. Charlie has agreed to join me next month on Love That Album. We only, I only just discovered in recent weeks that Charlie's something of a jazz buff. And I found that very, very exciting. So I said to Charlie, hey, why don't you join me to do a mystery box episode of Love That Album, and we're going to each pick three jazz albums that loom large in our lives, and we're going to talk about them each for about 10, 15 minutes, so that will sort of round up one decent-sized program, but, you know, about yeah, 10, 15 minutes for each album. We know what the other one's albums are, so we can have something intelligent to say about the other person's picks, but I call it mystery box because you don't know what they're going to be until you download and listen to them. And hopefully you'll choose to do that. So please let your friends who are jazz fans know that the program exists. That'll be episode 95 of Love That Album. Really looking forward to uh, welcoming Charlie back to the show. Last time he was on, he and Scott came on to discuss Randy Newman album, Sail Away. And we had a lot of fun talking about that. All right. So uh, anyway, you heard earlier on in the show, you want to get in contact with me, the email and the Facebook page. If you don't remember it, go back to the beginning of the show. Listen all over again and hear Joanne describe to you how you can get in contact with the show or how you can join the Facebook group. Thanks very much, Jules, for joining us once again. Thank you. And we'll be back next month with another couple of episodes of Love That Album. Thanks once again for listening. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.